0: Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, if you would turn to the book of Haggai, no, excuse me, the book of Ezra, I got ahead of myself. If you would turn to the book of Ezra and keep your finger there, and then if you'll flip over to the book of Isaiah chapter forty-five, uh, we're gonna we're gonna stop in Isaiah forty-five first, just to give you a little help. Ezra is not all the way in the towards the end of the Old Testament; it's right after uh, joshua judges ruth all those books so it's not into the prophets yet still still one of our his- historic books but let's go to lord in prayer and we'll get started father we thank you for your word and we thank you for all of the blessings you give us in life lord we thank you that there were faithful people uh, who walked according to your commandments that we can glean things from and we can see the way that you interacted with them in the scriptures lord and we can uh, change the way that we behave in order that we can better serve you. And so, God, I pray that through studying uh, the book of Ezra that we would be encouraged and that we would be uh, given more boldness to uh, courageously follow you uh, wherever you call us to go. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, we're going to start in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. But to catch you up to uh, Isaiah 45 in the book of Ezra, uh, let me give you just a brief review of what we've covered. As, you, as most of you know, if you're new here, that uh, all of our sermons are on the website and you're able to catch up. But we are we are about three-quarters of the way through a great story. And uh, I'm just going to give you just enough so that today can make good sense. The uh, God creates everything in seven days, or in six days rather, And then a couple uh, sentences after that in Scripture. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 3.15, everything is messed up because man has sinned. And so by the time you get to Genesis 12, God has chosen a man named Abraham. And he's going to draw the nation of the world back to himself through Abraham. And so he takes his people and he promises to give Abraham a land, seed, and a blessing. And so he then takes the people of Abraham and he walks them to the promised land. And they just stumble and fall into sin. And so he puts them away in slavery. Uh, the people are delivered from slavery. And now God is going to once again get them into the promised land. Well, the people end up occupying the promised land. They build the temple. And things go swimmingly for about 40 years. And then, if you know anything about the history of Israel, they begin to tank again. And so God sends prophet after prophet to tell the people of Israel that they need to repent or they're going to go into captivity and they're going to suffer the curses of the covenant that God made with Moses. And so the people begin to experience curse after curse after curse uh And then the nation gets swept off into captivity, the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel finds itself in Assyria. Well, Assyria takes over Babylon. The people of Judah in the south, they are just full of disobedience also. And so before long, the nation of Babylon comes in and takes out Judah as well. And so now Israel and Judah are both in captivity in Babylon. And so in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, you have God says this. This is actually back up one verse. Into chapter 44, 44, verse 28. And so the people are in captivity now uh, in the book of Isaiah. And God writes this to his people. It is I, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And the temple, your foundation, will be laid. Chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of, of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, The God of Israel who calls you by name. And so the people are in captivity and God promises 350 years before Ezra begins that there's a guy named Cyrus who God is going to appoint to be the leader of the world. And and God is going to be a shepherd to Cyrus. And Cyrus is going to do exactly what the Lord wants him to do. And this is while the people are in captivity in Assyria. Well, Babylon takes over Assyria. And then the Medes and the Persians come, and they take over Babylon. Now you get to the book of Ezra. Turn to Ezra chapter 1, if you will. And it just so happens that this guy, Cyrus, is the king of Persia. The Medes and the Persians, Persia. Cyrus is the king of Persia. And this is 350 years after that prophecy was given in the book of Isaiah. So you, you start with the book of Ezra chapter 1. And in Ezra chapter 1... You have the people rebuilding the temple. Remember I told you, this is a lot to keep up with, so bear with me just a bit longer. I told you that there's three groups of prophets. Pre-exile prophets, exile prophets, and post-exile prophets. We, we finished up the pre-exile prophets, and then Daniel and Ezekiel were the exile prophets written to the people while they were in captivity. Well, Ezra is a historical book. Haggai is its kind of counterpart. And Haggai is a post-exile prophet. And so by the time you get to Ezra chapter 1, the first wave of people have left captivity and they've come back and they're inhabiting the promised land. Now this is a very good thing that's happening. So now we pick up in Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying... "So You see what's happening here? God has stirred up Cyrus, whom he prophesied 350 years before that he would do. Now Cyrus, king of Persia, verse 2, The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a house for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever, Whomever... There is among you all of his people. May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle together, with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So out of the blue one day, Cyrus, king of Persia, king of the known world, wakes up and he says, hey... I'm going to build God a house back where it belongs in Jerusalem, in Judah. And so Cyrus tells all of his people, listen, whoever of you is from that area, you're free to go back and rebuild. I'm turning you loose. Sounds a lot like the book of Exodus when God frees the slaves, doesn't it? They're captives in a land, and God comes in and he frees them. But just like the book of Exodus, when the people leave, how do they leave? You remember in the book of Exodus, it tells us that when they left egypt to go to the promised land they all walked out looking like mr t because everybody gave them all of their gold all of their silver they gave them several pairs of clothes and so they had on all kinds of clothes they had on all sorts of gold jewelry earrings all of the sorts and so they walked out like mr t that's that discernment i told you about there's every once in a while it kicks in and works all right and so they walk out and they walk out rich And so in the same way, Cyrus tells the people, listen, if you want to go, if you're from that area, go. And when you go, if your neighbors want to give you anything, take it from them and you take it with you. And so they don't just leave with what they have. They leave with the people giving them all sorts of money to go and do the job that they have to do. Now, verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers, households of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites arose... Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those, verse 6. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, and with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, verse 7, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Midrith, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Shezabar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, and it goes on and on and on, all together. 5,400 articles that he gives back. And so are you getting this? The king of the known world has exiles from Judah and Israel, and he just sets them free to go back to their land. This doesn't happen. So the king sets them free, and he doesn't just set them free, but he opens the doors to the royal treasury, and he gives back everything that two kings prior to him stole. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar came in and took all of those things, and now they've been in the royal treasury, and Cyrus just one day wakes up with a crazy hair and says, hey, I think I'm going to turn all these people free, and I'm going to give them back everything we took from them. This is not normal, is it? But in Isaiah, God said, I'm going to do this through Cyrus, so that you will know that I am the Lord. The same way when the people were in, in Egypt, that they were, they were held captive by the strongest world power that there was. And God sets them free so that the rest of the world would know that there is a God in Israel and he is the one who set them free. And so you go on through the rest of the book of Ezra, and so the people go back for the purpose of rebuilding the temple to God. Well, you get over to chapter 3, and the construction of the temple begins. In the beginning of chapter 3, the people first rebuild the altar, and they begin giving sacrifices back to God on the altar. Remember, if you're going to sacrifice something to God, you can only do it at the right place under the old covenant. You don't just sacrifice whatever you want, where you want. You worship God. In the way that he tells you to worship him. And so they rebuild the altar. And they begin giving all sorts of offerings to God. Then down in chapter 3 verse 7. They begin to rebuild the foundation. And so obviously when you're building something. That's the first thing you build. And so they get to building. And eventually they finish the foundation. And listen what happens in verse 10. It says. Now when the builders. This is chapter 3 verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. "...the priests stood in their apparel with the trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asphodel, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel." So, here you go. They've built the foundation. The foundation is finished. They bring in the priest, break out the trumpets, break out the cymbals. We're going to worship the Lord. Verse 11, "...they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for He is good, and his, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the lord because the foundation of the house of the lord was laid And so this is a great time in the history of israel The temple has been destroyed and now they have rebuilt it. The foundation is laid and everybody's praising the lord Almost listen to verse 12 Yet many of the priests and levites and heads of father's households the old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping of the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. And so the scene here is there's trumpets. There's cymbals. Uh, there's All of the young people are cheering and they're excited that the house of the Lord is being revealed. Everyone is very zealous. But the old men are standing there And while everyone else is praising the Lord, this older generation is weeping because they were old enough to remember 50 years earlier when the temple of Solomon was destroyed. And so why would the older people be weeping and the younger people be celebrating? Because the new temple was absolutely nowhere as nice as the temple that Solomon had built. The temple that Solomon built was absolutely extraordinary. Best best thing that's ever been built. And now this temple, the people are poor. They don't have a whole lot of resources. And the temple that they build is nothing compared to the glory and splendor of the first temple. And so that begs the question, why in the world would God have them build a temple that is that the older generation is going to cry over that they because it's not as nice as the old temple and the answer is over in hebrews chapter eight hebrews chapter eight you're welcome to turn there you can just listen and it has something to do with the old covenant and the new covenant now the covenant that god made with moses is what we call the old covenant and god has slowly been working remember when jeremiah was giving his uh his prophetic words jeremiah was telling the people about a new covenant that was to come listen to this hebrews chapter eight verse seven For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for them a second. For finding fault with them, he says, this is God speaking, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. And listen to this, verse 13. When he said a new covenant... in jeremiah he has made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear and so what's going on here is that you are witnessing in the book of ezra that the old covenant is slowly becoming obsolete and it is about to disappear and so the first temple that solomon made is this grand glorious temple and the old covenant is in full swing Well, it gets destroyed because of the disobedience of the people and they build a new temple in the book of Ezra and it's nowhere near as nice as the first temple. The reason is, is because history is progressing and the old covenant is about to be done away with. In about 500 years, there will be no more old covenant for the people to follow because God is in the process of making a new covenant. And so what you're watching is you're watching the temple phase itself out to where it's no longer needed. And that's the purpose behind God allowing them to build a temple that does not have the same glory as the other one. And what you'll find is there are also things that Nebuchadnezzar stole that do not get returned, you don't see the Ark of the Covenant in the new temple. You don't see the glory of the Lord descending again on this temple that Ezra builds like it did when Solomon built it. Remember when Solomon dedicates the temple, there's this grand thing going on, and you see the glory of the Lord descending, and it dwells in the Holy of Holies? No more is that happening. And you've got to ask yourself, why? And the answer is because the old covenant is being phased out and the glory of the Lord is about to dwell on earth through a man we call Emmanuel, who is God with us. And so all of that plays into it. So the people are celebrating. Some of them are crying. You get on to Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. Anytime, absolutely any time that a great work is being done for the Lord, what's going to happen? Naysayers are going to come about. And so in chapter 4, verse 4, It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so what happens here is that all the people who had been living in the land, they hire all of these lobbyists, so to speak, to go into the courts of the king and to discourage the king from allowing the Jews to build. And there's also all sorts of troubles that the people give the jews as they're trying to go about rebuilding the temple remember this whenever god is at work doing something opposition will always come if you are joyfully serving the lord in your life and you're not suffering any opposition for the things that you're doing for the lord you might not be doing enough because those who are in christ jesus will suffer persecution book of james It's clear. And this always happens. And so, as you continue through the book of Ezra, what you'll find is that the king ends up telling the people, okay, stop building the temple. Just stop what you're doing. All of these lobbyists, they they have their way, and they convince the king to stop. So, progress is halted on the temple, and then, ultimately, the people go and they talk to the king, and the king allows the people to start rebuilding the temple again. And you would think that... You would think that this this hurt the people, this, this pause that was taken. But listen to this. This is when the king allows them to start rebuilding the temple. He says, I don't want to have anything else to hear about it. I'm telling the Jews, start rebuilding the temple. And all of you troublemakers, I want you to give them from your tax money, I want you to give them help in rebuilding the temple. So not only have they been halted from building the temple, but now that God has given them the green light to start again, they're receiving all sorts of help from the naysayers. And then the king also says this. This ought to be comforting for you who are going through some sort of suffering and you're wondering whether to allow God to exact judgment and call it revenge on that person or whether you want to take things into your own hands. Right? You ever had that dilemma where you could pursue XYZ in order to get someone back, or you could leave it in the Lord's hands. You ever been there? You ever been there? All right, so you guys don't have the same sorts of problems I do. Good. Here you go. The king says this, And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, listen to this, this is God's revenge, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. How about that? How about that? God says, (laughs) the king says, okay, if anyone goes against my decree, if anyone tries to stop the Jews from rebuilding their temple, this is what's going to happen to them. Take a beam from the man's house, impale him, demolish his house, and make it a dung heap. How's that for justice? I told you that God comes up with these playground insults that are way better than anything that you and I ever came up when we were in elementary school. And so we are well-suited oftentimes to leave things in the Lord's hands. Anyways, as we keep going, you get to verse 16. And the temple is completed, and they're going to dedicate the temple in chapter 6, verse 16. It says, "...and the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy." And so the people are joyful. They offered, verse 17, they offered for the dedication of the temple of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats corresponding to the number of tribes of Israel. And so if you will just think back to the book of First and Second Kings, when the temple was being built, this is 200. This is not an exaggeration. This is not a number that I just made up. This is 200 times less than was done when Solomon's temple was dedicated. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, it was a several day long process where they had one day where each tribe of Israel offered everything that they had to offer. And there were thousands... Thousands upon thousands of animals offered. So much so that when we were going through it, I was telling you that if they killed all of the animals on that same altar, the cows would have been backed up to downtown Windsor, all the way past Wells Fargo. Would have been a, just a tremendous amount of animals that would have been backed up, waiting to be slaughtered. And now there's only several hundred that are being offered. And so you can see that this new temple is absolutely nothing compared to what the old temple was like. Now, this temple is still going to function. You're going to see in the book of Zechariah that good things still go on at this temple. But what I want you to see as we go over to verse 19 is that something very, very, very interesting has happened. You remember in the book of Ezekiel when God says... You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to flip over there. Ezekiel says in chapter 11, verse 14, he says that when the people come back into the land... Even though I had removed them far away among the nations and though I had scattered them among the countries Yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone Therefore thus says the lord god I shall gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered And I shall give you the land of israel You're watching that happen under cyrus king of persia and so the people are back into the land verse 18 when they come there I will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And listen to this. This is one of the things that's going to happen when God brings the people back into the land. Verse 19. And I shall give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. And so if you were to go and you were to read the book of Ezra and you were to read the book of Haggai, you would find something strikingly different about the people. And that's this generation of people does not behave the same way that the other generations did. Now, what's written in Ezekiel is not fulfilled all the way until the new covenant comes. But God is beginning to change the hearts of the people so that they can obey. Remember, the weakness in the old covenant... Is that the heart of the people is not conditioned to obey. And so now you get to chapter 6 verse 19 of Ezra, and they're gonna, they're gonna celebrate the first Passover in this new temple. And this Passover isn't gonna be like other Passovers. Listen to the wording and you'll see how it's different. Chapter 6 verse 19. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves, the sons of Israel who returned from exile, and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land, to join them, to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. Now, he has distinguished two groups of people within Israel. I hope you notice that. That There's some that have separated themselves from the impurities and then there's others who are impure. There's two groups of people in the land, both Israelites, one pure, one impure. Verse 22, and they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of the God, the God of Israel. And so when you read through this, hopefully you get the same thing. When you are reading anything from Genesis all the way up to uh, this current point, the people are worshiping the Lord, but they are not worshiping the Lord with the right heart. You get that? Do you see the difference here when you get to the book of Ezra? Is that these people are worshiping the Lord and they're keeping his commands and they're keeping the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. How are they doing it? They're joyfully doing it. They're not just going through the motions. They're not just waking up on Sunday morning, ironing some clothes and coming to church. But these are people who are joyfully going about the things that the Lord has for them to do. And the reason that they're able to do this is because in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Jeremiah, you learn that this new covenant is coming. And when the people get back in the land, they're going to be able to obey because of the new heart that they've been given. And because God's spirit is working in them. And so that's where we are. And so this amplifies itself even more. At one point, um, uh, as you get on to chapter 8, Ezra, he's ready to now leave captivity. Ezra was not part of the rebuilding of the foundation of the temple. Ezra leads another group of people back. But listen to what happens. We're going to skip that section. In chapter 9 of Ezra. And we're getting somewhere with all of this. Chapter 9, verse 1 of Ezra. Ezra's been in Israel now for about four and a half months. And it says, Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests of the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, according to their abominations. And so the people who have gone back into Israel have not separated themselves. From all of the pagans that are in Israel. Okay. So now there's two groups of people. There's the, there's the holy group of people in Israel. Who have kept themselves from being defiled. And then there's another group of people in Israel. Listen to what they've done. For they have taken some of the daughters. Some of their daughters as wives for themselves. And for their sons. So that the holy race has intermingled. With the peoples of the lands. Indeed the hands of the princes. And the rulers have been foremost. In this unfaithfulness. Verse 3. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. And so what's happening is that the holy race, the people of Israel, has been intermingled with all of these other races. And just for the record, this is a religious race, not an ethnic race. You learn in the book of Romans that God's people, the real Jews, are Jews by faith. And so it's not that you have people of different races intermarrying here, it's that you you have a holy people of faith intermingling with the people who are not of faith. And this is a disaster in God's eyes in the Old Covenant. And so that's what's happening is that half of the people have intermingled. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? When they've intermingled with people not of faith and they're, they're having children and they, they're growing families, you see this going a good way or a bad way? Eh, a pretty bad way. This is about par for the course for the Israelites. But listen to the difference in this heart of the Israelites when this new covenant is being ushered in. And so uh, Ezra keeps going in verse 13 of chapter 9. And he's, he's crying out to God in prayer. And he says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt... Since you, our God, have required us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this. And so Ezra is crying out to the Lord and he looks at all the punishment that Israel has suffered and he recognizes that they didn't get near what they deserved. And he recognizes that God has saved a remnant of people to rebuild with. And so he cries out and he's He's ashamed that this remnant is being defiled. Verse 14, Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. And so Ezra recognizes that the people are guilty of this sort of sin. And in his cry of repentance, he is not arrogant. He's not boastful. This is a perfect picture of how you and I should come before God when we are in sin. We should recognize that God has dealt with us gracious up to this point, And we should stand there guilty we should stand there and we should cast ourselves upon his mercies and thank God through the new covenant that we have a savior who can forgive us of our iniquities and we're getting to this okay and so what happens is that the people want to remake the covenant with God and so you're down in chapter 10 and it says now while Ezra was praying and making confession weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God so this is the way, this is what Ezra's doing. A very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And so they see their leader crying out in sin, prostrating himself before God, and they don't come up to him and go, hey, look at that loser, what's he doing? No, they recognize what's going on, and they also weep bitterly. And so, in verse 2, Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So the people come up to the leader and they tell the leader, Let's make a covenant with God and not just like they did to Moses. Oh, everything you've said we will do. No, they come up with a remedy for the situation. And so there is true repentance ready to make this sin right on the heart of the people. So verse four says, arise for this matter is your responsibility, but we will act with you. Be courageous and act. And so that's what the people say to Ezra. Ezra, it's your job as the leader to fix it. Be courageous and act. We're going to follow you. Listen, sin is to be taken seriously. And whenever someone is caught up in sin, it is your job and it's my job to do this, to be courageous and act. Don't just stay there and sin. Don't just wallow around in it and wonder how you're going to get out of it. Verse 5, Then Ezra rose and made the leading priest, the Levites and all Israel, take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanna, the son of... I'm not going to read all those names because I don't know them. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Listen to this, verse 7. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. Listen to this. And that whoever would not come within three days... According to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. And so the leaders of Israel, Ezra, says, listen, we're going to deal with this sin and we're going to deal with it now. You all have three days to get to Jerusalem. And if you don't get to Jerusalem within three days, everything you have is going to be forfeited and we're going to send you away. How's that for dealing with sin? And so you see one of the principles here that ezra is going by is that sin is not just something that you sit on But it's something you deal with and you deal with quickly. You don't just let it slide and so What's going to happen is the people are going to come together and they're going to solve this problem you get over to verse 9, we're not going to read the whole section, but they're going to come up with a plan to make things right. And what needs to happen is that all of the men who have taken wives that they shouldn't have had and had children that they shouldn't have had, this is the old covenant now, this is not the new covenant. And you're under the new covenant, so I don't recommend any of you do this. But they're putting away those wives, and they're putting away those children with their wives so that they can keep the new covenant. Then it says in verse 15, only Jonathan, son of a shell, and those people, son of those people, oppose this. So there's one guy named Jonathan who opposes it. And he's got a friend who also opposes it. Then with Meshelam and Shabathia, the Levites, supporting them. Now this is what's happening. That Ezra comes up with this plan. The people sign off on it. And they're going to carry out the plan. But there's two guys who disagree. And those two guys who disagree have two people behind them who, who aren't vocally disagreeing, but they're supporting them. Right? You ever been there? You ever been there before? Where you have nobody who really disagrees. They nominate one person to be the front person. And then they all stand behind that person. Right? You ever seen that before? You never seen that? Man, you guys got to get out more. So you you got two mouthpieces and then two people supporting them. So listen, this is how I see it. You have two people who are man enough to say what they really think. And you have two cowards behind them who aren't man enough to say what they really think. That's how I really feel. All right, so now that's what's happened. You got these four people who are in disagreement. Only two of them man enough to address the situation. Now you have, now listen to this. This is all as a result of Ezekiel and the new heart that God's given him. There's four people who disagree. And then verse 18 says, among the sons of the priest who had married foreign wives were found the sons of Jeshua. That's going to be important. The son of Jehoshadak and all of these other people. They pledged, To put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. And so you have, they're going to address the situation. Ezra gathers the people together. Even the high priest's sons are guilty. And what's the reaction of the people when their sin is called onto the carpet? It's not that they just run off and do whatever they want. But listen to this. They make a pledge to make things right. And they realized that they were guilty and they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Have you seen this yet in the old covenant through Moses? Have you seen people being confronted about their sin and then being grieved over their sin and then they make an offering back to God to repent of their sin? This is something new that you haven't seen before in the scriptures. This is something incredible, and the only reason that this is able to happen is because God has given the people a new heart and a new spirit within them. And then if you keep reading in verse 29, you read that the sons of Bonnie, Meshelam, that's the same Meshelam that's over in verse 15. One of the people who opposed what all of the leaders were saying, he's one of the people that are guilty of the sin, and even the guy who doesn't agree with the leadership who is guilty of the sin, even he repents. And this is all because of the new heart that God has given as a result of this new covenant that's on its way. And so here's the thing. Listen, Christians. People who are under the new covenant are in unity together and they do not stay hard-hearted towards their sin. If you are here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ and your sins have been forgiven, if you've been given a new heart and a new spirit within you, the Holy Spirit within you, you cannot stay in your sin and be a member of the new covenant. It does not It does not fit with what the Scriptures teach. And so what this means is that if you have a hard heart and you are hardened towards sin, there is a 99.9% chance that you are lost. And when you look out and you look at your family and your friends, all the people that we're going to reunite with at Christmas, when you run across anybody who is hardened in their sin, there is a very, very good chance that that person is not a participant in the New Covenant. Because in the New Covenant... It is possible for people to disagree and then even amidst that disagreement still have unity and still conform to the law of God. You following me? People who are believers in Jesus Christ repent of their sins and they seek out unity. That's a big amen. And so if you are here and you are hardened in any of your sin, the good news is is that the new covenant is open to anyone who is willing to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins. If you believe that he rose from the dead, you will be saved and you will be given a new heart and a new nature and you will then begin to desire to follow the laws of God and you will worship him through that. This is all very, very, very good news for the people of God. Because no longer is this, is this uh, following God an external thing, but now it can be an internal thing too, where your desires actually match up with what God tells you to do. Amen? All right. So listen, this is what I want to... I want to give us a point of application in this unity about the people of God. We are going to be voting soon. We're going to be voting on some new deacons. We're going to be voting on approving our church budget for the next year. I think that we as people of God who have new hearts and new natures should be in unity in the things that we do. If we choose deacons and they get voted in by due process, I think that we should be united in supporting them. And one of the things that this means is that when our budget comes up, because you chose the deacons and we, as a body of Christ, voted them in, I think that you should support them in the budgets that they try to pass also. So one of the things that we're going to do in the near future for the sake of unity is we're going to have a uh, Wednesday night where we get together. and the first few minutes of the Wednesday night meeting, we're going to give you a chance to ask any questions you want to about the budget that we're going to pass. And so the purpose of this is so that when we go to vote on our budget, we can be in unity together as God's people. You following me? And you will have a chance to voice any questions, concerns, anything you have then you can make it known. We'll do this in enough time for the deacons to give thought to everything that was said and then if they need to go back and relook at the budget that was made and then put forward one that we will walk with in unity. Does this mean that everybody's going to get their way? No, not at all. But this means that as the people of God, everybody has a chance to be heard and that we together can affirm something in unity. Amen. Because the only way for churches to be successful is if we all do it together amen not just people doing one thing for the sake of disagreeing even this guy who disagreed and had a wife that nobody agreed with now listen if I have learned anything as a pastor you do not talk about somebody's spouse amen funny story this has nothing to do with somebody's spouse but it's going to relate I'm working on a new house right and this boy comes in I'll allow him to remain nameless This boy comes in and he starts talking to me and i'm talking to him great young man And he starts telling me that he's playing guns with his brother But his brother won't come out so he can find him because he's going to shoot his brother when he finds him And so I said wow. I said, you know what that means, right? And he says what's that mean? I said that means that your brother's a chicken and he says don't you call my brother a chicken And so he's he's upset with his brother for not coming out of hiding so that he can shoot him but on the other hand, as soon as something negative happens about his brother, as soon as he's called a chicken, he's right there sticking up for his brother. You can take somebody who is in a knockdown, down drag-out fight with their spouse, and you can say something bad about their spouse, and all of a sudden, they are not mad at their spouse anymore. They are mad at you, because how dare you say that about my spouse? I can call him a a scum-eating dog all I want to, but you're not allowed to say anything about him. Right? Ever been there? You got friends like that? This guy who was in disagreement sized up his life with what the Word of God said. And he didn't get angry when the Word of God didn't jive with his life. But he looked and he changed his life as opposed to getting up in arms and being upset. That is a characteristic of somebody who is a participant in the new covenant. We don't get angry when our life doesn't match this. We don't want to change this. We want to change this. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... We thank you that we live on this side of the temple being destroyed. We thank you that we live on this side of Christ. And God, we thank you that... Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are participants in the new covenant where you desire and you have changed our hearts so that we can serve and worship you. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never had that new heart, if there's anyone here who doesn't have that desire to worship you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they call out to you and that you save them. Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us walk in unity. I pray that you would continue to help us Always size up our life on your word as opposed to changing your word to fit our needs. Father, forgive us where we fail you and continue to convict us of our sin so that we can be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. If you would stand for our hymn of invitation. Just for one moment a couple of things to share with you so that I don't forget I'm going to tell you the announcements that I forgot first Don't forget today's the last day to sign up in person for the pictures for our directory Uh, The ladies are right out that door on your way out. Uh, You can sign up in person Uh, If you want to sign up at the uh, on our church website, you can do that as well But this is the last day to sign up uh, with real people in person Uh, then you'll be uh You'll have to use the computer to sign up. Also, wanted to tell you that we sent uh, about 11 women to the uh, Women of Faith conference. They had a real good time. And uh, hopefully next year, uh, more of you ladies will be uh, able to go. We had a lot more that wanted to go, but life happened and they weren't able to. So hopefully you'll be able to speak to some of those ladies who went to the Women of Faith, and you can be encouraged. Uh, and possibly go next year we have uh, three people now you guys come on up that uh, want to join fellowship with our church uh, Because you've been here longer than I have you probably already know them. This is russell and diane phelps uh, They will be coming to our church on transfer of letter. This is Mary Beth, and she's going to be coming on transfer of letter also uh, All of them have been baptized by immersion and have put their faith in jesus christ And so all who are in favor of accepting them to our fellowship. Let it be known by saying aye with well, a done deal. It's good to have you guys. Uh, if y'all would just stay up here when we close. Uh, you guys come by and make them feel welcome. Uh, I tell you, when people visit our church, uh, they give some of the biggest compliments that could ever be given to a church. And it's not, we love the preaching. It's, we can tell that the Holy Spirit is at work in this church. And that is what person after person after person says. And brothers and sisters, there are churches across America where the Holy Spirit is vacant. And you should count yourself blessed that God has chosen to be amongst us working in the ways that He has. Uh, I'm looking forward to a Thanksgiving Day sermon soon. I've got all sorts of things that I'm thankful for that I'll tell you about when the time comes. But uh, I praise the Lord that God is doing a work amongst us. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Brother Bob Spivey. would you close us in prayer?